2: Heads bowed down, we
3: will gather ye.
4: Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, today accompanied by my wife, Beth.
5: Hello, everybody.
4: For those of you who don't know about the show, part of the show is about estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The other part of the show, and they're not equal parts, we talk about politics, history, religion, sports, baseball. Tonight, we're going to be talking a little bit about baseball. You all know it's the 50th anniversary of the Miracle, the Miracle Mets of
5: 1969.
4: Yay! And we have two of those Miracle Mets teammates on, Gary Gentry, who pitched the clinching game of the division and pitched six and two-thirds shutout innings in the third World Series game. So Gary Gentry's going to be on. And of course, Art Shamsky, the right fielder platoon right fielder with Ron Soboto, who we've had on the show before, who hit 300 that year for the Mets. And R. Chamsky has a book out, After the Miracle, and he's going to be talking about his experiences during that great season. We spent a lot of time talking about history and re- religion and so forth, but we're also going to have a World War II pilot on one of the few World War II pilots, still alive, Dino Cerruti. And he's just going to give us a few of his recollections about, you know, the greatest generation and, and the war. But meanwhile, let's get back to estate planning and elder law. Beth, do we have an email question about estate planning.
5: We do have an email question. And I'm going to apologize If you know me, you know I wear glasses because I can't see very well anymore. And they've given me an email question with little bitty words. So let's see how I do. This is from Lynn. My only assets are a 401k account and ownership of a cooperative apartment. My understanding is that the 401k account will be dispersed to its beneficiaries, so there's no concern about that. In order to avoid will probate, should I put my apartment in a trust? What is the approximate cost to set this up?
4: Well, yes, the question is you should, you should put the apartment in a trust to avoid probate. If when you pass away, you have a stock certificate to an apartment, a co-op apartment, that co-op will go through probate, which means a court has to rule on whether your will is valid or who your relatives are or whatever. And, and sometimes it's routine, but things are getting to the point where it's not as routine as it used to be. Everything seems to be taking longer and longer as the years wear down. And plus, if you have medical bills not covered by insurance, namely a nursing home bill, the nursing home can put a lien on your apartment if it goes through probate. So that's you know some of the reasons when we want to go through probate. Now part of the problem with with apartments, co-ops, you know, if you own a deed to the house, we could just put a deed together, transfer it over to the kids in a trust. It's just between you and the kids, and there's no middleman. If you own a co-op, if we want to transfer the, the stock certificate in the co-op into a trust. We need approval of the co-op board to transfer the stock certificate from your name to the name of the trust. Sometimes some co-ops do it all the time and it's relatively easy. Sometimes co-ops, they, they always want to take a look at the trust, see what it says, make sure there's not something in there that they don't like. In other words, that your son or daughter has a right to live in the apartment without being interviewed and goes into the building without them knowing it. They may want restrictions on who can move in, who whether you can sell the apartment, things like that. So the co-op board has to review the trust agreement. Some of them set up a formal closing, just like when you bought the apartment in the first place. Some co-ops, it's a paperwork transaction. You just fill out the form, send it into them, and they issue your new stock certificate. They're going to charge you for it. And what are the charges? Co-op charges can be anywhere from from $2,000 to if they charge a flip tax for it, it could be $50,000. Now, obviously, I wouldn't recommend you do a trust unless the circumstances are very extreme. I would not recommend doing a trust if you got to pay the co-op. $50,000 $50,000 flip tax because probate ordinarily is going to cost a lot less than that. So that's one of the things we just have to talk it over. At Connors and Sullivan, our fees, you can always come in. We talk it over. And I mean, things depend. Are you leaving it all to one child? Are you leaving it to two children? Are you disinheriting a third? Do we have any tax issues? There are a lot of factors that go into the documents we prepare. Do you already have a will? Don't you have a will? Do you have a good power of attorney? Do you have a health proxy? So we have to figure out what you have and what you need. And then we would give you an estimate based on what you tell us. And everything we do as far as that's concerned is on a flat fee basis. We don't charge by the hour. We charge by the job. So, so let us know what you want to accomplish. Tell us what documents you have. Let us take a look at the documents. And then we go from there. And then you can decide whether you want to go ahead with the trust or your co-op. Because it can get a little expensive between paying the regular legal fees and also paying the co-op board and their lawyers. You're paying for two lawyers there. It's sometimes it's fairly routine and you have co-op lawyers who know what they're doing and they can process the application in a relatively quick period of time. Sometimes it goes through and it goes through the, the co-op bureaucracy. You give them the paper sometimes in May. They break for the summer. They don't give you an answer till September. That could happen, too. So every co ops a little different. We'll talk it over, figure out what the co-op needs to do to switch it over. and And I want to stress this again. It takes the approval of the co-op board. If the co-op says no, we cannot transfer that stock certificate into a trust. Now, there are other things we can do. Maybe we can have a joint with somebody else, and that person signs an agreement saying, I'm going to divide it according to your wishes. But we cannot transfer that stock certificate unless the co-op says no. And some co-ops, they say no, no matter what. And there's not an end round around it. It doesn't hurt to ask. So come in, and we'll figure it out, and go from there. But again, schedule an appointment with us. Initial consultation is free. We'll tell you exactly what it would cost. We may have to wait a week or so to find out what the co-op is going to cho- charge you, but we can find out exactly what it would cost. Each week, Kevin McCullough takes a call from one of our listeners, and we try to answer it on his show. So we're going to turn it over to Kevin McCullough, who you can hear on 970 The Answer, ordinarily Monday through Friday at 5, 4 o'clock on Wednesdays, because John Katzimatides has his show at 5. And you can also hear Kevin Monday through Friday at 3 o'clock, on our sister station, WMCA. So, Kevin, take it away.
3: All right, every single week we guarantee you that uh, Mike Connors will appear from Connors & Sullivan's Law Firm to uh, come and answer a question related to your estate care and your elder care. And uh, today's question is a unique one, given the fact that uh, we've never talked about anything internationally related to uh, those topics. But today's question from Fanny says, Mr. Connors, my father was born and raised in Italy before migrating to the U.S., He has both an Italian and a New York State will. How does probate work in this situation, as I don't know where to begin? Uh, Mike, I can feel her pain. How should she start?
4: Well, the first thing, you have to read both wills. And this is a real problem, because a lot of times the standard will, let's say the standard will we do here in New York, it says, I revoke all wills and codicils heretofore made by me. So somebody does, you know, they have land in Italy. They have a will leaving the land in Italy to whomever. And, of course, there are a lot of strict guidelines on, on the descent of, of real estate in Europe. But they say that. And then we do a will, not knowing about the Italian will, saying we revoke all prior wills. That will is, in theory, revoked. Or vice versa. And sometimes that can cause a lot of problems. So th- right. you've got to read the wills together. You know, in other words, our will might say... Uh, I revoke all wills and codicils done in the United States. I do not revoke the will pertaining to the real property located in Italy, so forth and so on. And we had one case that went back and forth for years. An English will that said I revoked all the all my prior wills, and we had a will here in the United States, and the family was fighting over that for years, and the, and whether the person had a will, didn't have a will. And the judge finally ruled, if the person made the trouble of going through signing two wills, he probably didn't intend to die without one. So it worked out well, but it took about four or five years to get there
3: sure well that sounds like something that would be quite complicated and friends maybe that's the kind of complications you have about these that's why Mike is there that's why he wants to know your questions and how to best answer them 718-238-6500 his staff is standing by right now 718-238-6500 you can also uh, listen to Mike answer more of your questions Saturday mornings at 8 on AM 570 the mission and Sunday mornings at 11 on AM 970 the answer when uh, he broadcasts the Ask the Lawyer radio show uh, but Mike Connors, we appreciate your help. Thanks so much.
4: Thank you, Kevin. Again, thank you to Kevin McCullough for his help on our show. Again, tonight, we're going to be listening to Dino Cerruti, World War II pilot, and two members of the Miracle 1969 Mets, Gary Gentry and Art Shamsky. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. We'll take a break, and we'll be back in a few minutes.
1: For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more.
5: Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars.
1: On Tuesday, April 9th at the Greenhouse Cafe, 7717 3rd Avenue in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. at Buckley's 2926 Avenue S in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn on Wednesday April 10th at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m. and at the Montauk Club, 25 8th Avenue in Park Slope, Brooklyn, on Thursday, April 11th at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m.
5: Can't go to any Connors and Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors and Sullivan at 718 238 6500 for your own free office appointment.
1: Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors and Sullivan at 718 718- 718 238 That's Connors & Sullivan 718-238-6500 or go to ConnorsAndSullivan.com
5: Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors & Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to ConnorsAndSullivan.com
1: Connors & Sullivan Plan now for later. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics,
4: religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. As many of you know, we've had numerous World War II veterans come in and talk about their experiences, and we're very pleased to have another World War II veteran, Dino Ceretti. December seventh, nineteen forty-one. Where were you?
6: I was in prep school up in New up in New Hampshire. I was graduating. I graduated June of 1942, um, and because the war had just started, um, uh, I had applied to Yale University. They accepted me, and they started. I graduated Exeter in, ex- in June. I started Yale in July. It, it was the only war class, and one of my classmates was George Bush Sr. George H.W. Bush was in my class at Yale. Anyway, the war was on. I was 18. Uh, I withdrew from from Yale to serve my country. Um, they called me up uh, late that year, uh, 1942. 1940, February of 43. I reported. Um, and they sent me for 10 days for basic training down in Atlantic City from Hartford, Connecticut. And then from there, 10 days later, I'm up in... Syracuse University for uh, cadet training, and then they sent me down to uh, Texas. Um, I went through the cadet um, classification program for months where they give you written tests, psychomotor tests, uh, interviews with psychiatrists, uh, physical exams, and so on. And I was finally classified for pilot training, single engine. And they sent me to Coleman, Texas for three months in a primary, primary trainer, a PT-13. a PT 13. And then they sent me from there to basic training with a BT-13, a Vault-E um, in Kansas. And then they sent me to Victoria, Texas, where I graduated, got my wings in May of forty three. I was sent out to California, Victorville, where I flew P-39s. And then from there, I went up to Chico, California, to be checked out in P-38s. And then they sent me down to the Southwest Pacific. I was sent to a little island uh, just off Okinawa, smaller than the island of Manhattan. And uh, I flew P-38s down there um, from uh, until, uh, I think, November. November 1945 and then the war ended and we were sent up to Japan for occupation duty um, but most of my most of my flying overseas was on the island of Biashima and I remember there were things that people back home never heard of there was one occasion I was I was waiting to take off in my P38 and I was waiting for the plane to be taking off, coming right at me, going from south to north, and he was in a P-47, and I found out later I saw him, he, he went right by me at the end of the runway, and he was having trouble taking off, and I saw him stagger off the runway, and fall down like about 100, 200 feet, and explode, everything exploded, the ammunition, the, he had two 300-gallon external gas tanks in addition to the internal gas. And uh, I found out later that that the P-47 pilots on that island were having trouble taking off because the runway was so short, it was only 3,700 feet long, and fighter planes really need a little bit more, especially when they have a a combat load. Um, So the Republic Aviation, which manufactured the P-47, sent... A man down there, uh, his name was Joe Parker. He was the, uh, uh, the most experienced P-47 pilot in the world in every model of the P-47. He was their chief test pilot, and they sent him out to Ayashima to teach these combat pilots how to take off with a full combat load, two external gas tanks uh, with less than full power, less than full power. And of course, he uh, he failed. He he went over the runway and exploded, and he died. And that was their top test pilot. They subsequently they they extended that runway from thirty seven hundred feet to forty eight hundred feet. Then there was another time, a very good friend of mine who flew was flying P thirty P thirty eight. He was he was in the same flight as I was, and he was right ahead of me taking off. And I waited for him to get halfway down the runway before I started taking off. And his name was uh, Carol Anthony from Odessa, Texas, a really nice kid. We were both 21 years old. And uh, he got halfway down the runway, and he was having trouble taking off. And I could see him bouncing along, struggling to get airborne. And he never did. And he slid off the end of the runway, the north end of the runway, down those 100, 200 feet. And all his ammo, all his, all his fuel, everything exploded. And I was, of course, I had to keep taking off. I went right through the smoke of his burning plane. Those are just two of the things that happened The people down back here in the States never hear about. All they, all they hear about are the combat losses and, and the dogfighting. But they never hear about the accidents that were happening all over, all over.
4: What was your mission at that particular time?
6: Oh uh, we were flying. The war was practically over. Japan had withdrawn most of their airplanes, preparing to defend the homeland um, for the expected invasion. We were all waiting all the we had must have had like eight hundred fighter planes on that little island, eight hundred fighter planes just we were dying to to go up there and, and invade Japan because we had the best planes and we thought we were the best pilots and. And uh, absolute confidence, but our mission basic was basically was reconnaissance. We would go up to Japan and rec- and reconnoiter, and uh, come all the way back uh, four, five, six, seven hours sometimes, and then we would fly missions covering the rescue of pilots who were down in the ocean. We would they would have submarines and navy rescue planes to pick up. Air crew members in the ocean, and we would fly cover for them. That's basically all that stuff we did in
4: 1945, toward the end of the war. Do you have yes. any comments, President Truman, his decision to drop the bomb on Hiroshima, and Nagasaki?
6: Personal comments? Yes. Yes, I would. We didn't have to do that. I was. I thought it was hard. I flew over Hiroshima after they dropped the bomb. I saw the devastation. It was disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. We killed seventy thousand civilians. Everybody, men, women, children, made no difference. Uh, in seconds, they were decimated, and then another seventy thousand on top of that within the next six months because of radiation burns. That's one hundred and fifty thousand people dead in a few seconds. And then we did the same thing in Nagasaki. It wasn't necessary, in my opinion. We could, we could have we could have beaten. We could have just sat there. Japan had no fertilizer. They had no gas. They had nothing. They were totally finished. All we had to do was sit and wait. We didn't even have to invade, in my opinion. I remember when we went up to Japan for occupation, and we would fly, we would drive from our barracks all the way out to the airfield, miles, maybe five, six, seven, eight miles, and the stench was so horrible. We had to put bandanas over our nose. It was so awful, disgusting. And what they were doing was the peasants, the people, would walk around with these bamboo poles over their shoulders with, 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 uh, with um, what do you call it, receptacles on the end, um, and, they, and, a, and a, a scooper. And they would pick up any kind of defecation, whether it's human or animal, and they would use that defecation to fertilize their fields. They had no fertilizer no chemicals they used human and animal feces it was awful they had no food they had no oil every bit of oil they had to had to, they needed they had to import i mean the base the war was over yeah we didn't have to we didn't have to drop the bomb in my opinion you asked you asked me, and I told you.
4: Yeah, I understand. Now, what do you think about some of the historians and, uh, and other strategists who said we would have lost a million people trying to invade Japan?
6: We didn't have to invade Japan, number one. And that story about a million people, who knows? Somebody makes up a number.
4: All right. Now, after the war, what did you do?
6: After the war, I came back, went back to Yale, and I had to make up that four years of service. So I I tried to accelerate. I went to two, two summer sessions I went all year round. I went to one summer session Yale and another summer session at UCLA because Yale finished. They didn't. They cut off their summer sessions after that. And then after that, I I went to Harvard Law School, graduated from there, came back to New York, which was my home, and uh, practiced law.
4: Okay, let me ask you a question. Where are you living now, and how old are you? <laughs> what's
6: What's today? The twentieth, twenty-first. <laughs> On Thursday, January twenty fourth, I'll be ninety-five years old. That's all? Ninety five, yeah. Ninety five. Yeah. I'm a kid. I'm barely starting out in life.
4: <laughs> Thank you for your service. Thank you for it telling me. My, listen,
6: I would have done it for nothing. God, what a what fun it was to fly those air. Can you imagine eighteen, nineteen years old flying high powered fighter planes? This is unbelievable. I would have done it for nothing. And they paid to teach me. Unbelievable. Well, thank you for bringing history to life. You're welcome.
7: If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Amelia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a Call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family make the call now 888-943-2646 or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia once again call 888 888- and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement.
0: Frank Milia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank. NMLS number 403503. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands
1: of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or
4: visit ccbq.org. The Mets. Welcome to the, to the Connors to Corner segment of Ask the, the Lawyer. Mets. Fifty years ago were the anniversary of the 69 Mets, and, and I remember a trade that built up where the, the Mets traded a fairly good utility infielder, Bob Johnson, to the Cincinnati Reds for our guest right now, Art Shamsky. Welcome to Connors Corner. My pleasure, Mike. So when, when were you traded, what did it feel like? Like you were going to a losing team at that point.
2: Yeah, I came up with the Cincinnati Reds and— um, my first year in the minor leagues, I played with Tony Perez and Pete Rose, and and um, came up with a lot of good young players. And actually, was the prelude to the Big Red Machine in the, in the mid seventies. And and when I first got traded, it was a little bit of a shock. Uh, you know, you, you're leaving friends that you've known. Is basically when you're 18 years old, and 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 the first time is always uh, it's a little bit of a of a, like I said a shock. And then of course I heard it was to the Mets and wasn't crazy about New York at the time and the Mets were just an awful team and you didn't win two out of three against them in a series or or didn't win the whole series, sweep them in three games, there was something wrong. So so that was a little bit of a shock, but when I got here and made new friends and and of course 2 years later after I got here we won the World Series and I've been in New York ever since. So funny how life works at times
4: yes it is now when you were when the Mets traded for you we were hoping you're going to be a big home run hitter because you had one very good year in Cincinnati as far as hitting home runs
2: yeah I hit the um it was the best ratio in the big leagues 20 I think it was 21 and only 230 at bats but I didn't stay healthy and that's the that's the problem you have to stay healthy but I, there's a story behind that too my good friend Eddie Cranepool always says that when he heard they made a trade with the Cincinnati Reds he thought it was for Pete Rose and he heard about it from me and he been, has been disappointed ever since. So uh, <laughs> what does that tell you?
4: <laughs> well, I don't think they could have gotten Pete Rose for Bob Johnson, but, you know, he's... No, I don't think so. All right, so you're playing with the Mets. When do things start turning around in your mind playing for them?
2: I, I think it actually started when Bill Hodges was named manager. Uh, my first year was 68, and that was his first year as manager, along with, you know, Tommy Agee and Al Weiss, and J.C. Martin. A few of the guys came on come on the team and. the... Uh, in '68, and and um, and Gill was really the the glue that the, this team needed. Here, I remember the first day in spring training in 1968, he had a meeting and he said, uh, "I want you guys to know that you will not be the same old Mets that everybody knows." And right off the bat, I knew he was going to be a tough, strong disciplinarian. And, and even though we didn't play that much better in '68, you could see the signs were changing. We had great pitching all those young pitchers and good defense. And we just didn't know how to win close games. We we would blow games two to one, three to two games that you normally could win, at least most of them. And, and so you knew things were on the rise. And then in spring of 69, uh, still nobody thought we were going to go on to win a world series. But I remember he gathered everybody around and he said, you know something, you guys are better than what you think. And he started to make us believe. And even though we started out, and not great in 69 we did have a couple streaks where we won some games but really it wasn't until the middle of the season particularly in august when when we really started to play well we were still nine games behind the cubs in the national league east and all of a sudden we started winning every game every series Everybody contributed, Uh, guys uh, at the end of the bench who came off the bench did things to help us win, and from that point on, we were unbeatable. Uh, We were a terrific team, and we swept a a really good Atlanta Braves team in the playoffs, and then, of course, we beat an incredibly talented Baltimore Oriole team that won 109 games in a regular season in the World Series, so we were a team to be reckoned with, but I really believe it started when Gil Hodges was named manager, and I think they would have won more World Series or we would have won more World Series if Gil would have lived longer too. He passed away at at the age of forty seven and never really got a chance to really get started and really continue that legacy of his.
4: Going back to year year in nineteen sixty nine, you hit three hundred and some of the people around today hitting three hundred in nineteen sixty nine was a much greater accomplishment than hitting three hundred in most of baseball history, especially the last few years.
2: Well, uh, you know, I don't know about that. It was uh, it was always a challenge in those years. You know, one of the things that that I always get uh, asked is, don't you wish you were playing now? And, of course, I say, wow, of course I would like to be making the money they make. But the reality of it is I wouldn't change it for that World Series ring I have in 69. And the other thing I think is really important, which relates to what you say, I, I got a, I got a chance to play with and against, I think, the greatest conglomerate of players in the history of the game. Just in the National League, where I played most of my career, you had Mays, Aaron Clemente, Billy Williams, Willie Stargell, uh, Willie McCovey, uh, Joe Torrey, Johnny Bench, Pete Rose, Tony Perez. I mean, the list goes on and on. But in particular, the pitchers I faced in that era, the Koufax, Drysdale, uh, Don Sutton, Marichelle Perry, Fergie Jenkins, Tom Stever, um, who I played against before I came over to the Mets. Uh, Bob Gibson, uh, Steve Carlton. I mean, the list goes on and on of great pitchers. So... Uh, in, in reality, I, I, I agree with you. It was really tough to hit for, for a high percentage back in those days. But um, the fact is, I wouldn't change it. Having had the a, a thrill to play against those guys and with some of those guys, when I came up to Cincinnati, the, the team had Frank Robinson in right field, Veda Pinson, uh, Tommy Harper was in left field. I mean, a lot of great players on that Cincinnati team. So. For me, I got a chance to play with and, and against some of the greatest players in the history of the game.
4: Just as a side, who do you think was the greatest player? And I know it's very tough, but who was the greatest player you played with and who was the greatest player you played against, in your opinion?
2: Well, the greatest player I probably played with it would be you know, right up there with uh, with separate pitchers, uh, because you have to put Seaver up there. But uh, Frank Robinson I played with at Cincinnati, who's a tremendous home run hitter and a very tough, tough guy. And... Then you have to put rose in there who had more hits than anybody in the history of the game so those two guys right off the bat and against i mean how do you find anybody better than willie mays and then you'd go to pittsburgh and you'd see Clemente and say who's better than him and then you go to atlanta and say who's better than aaron so i had the best of both worlds and Um, power hitters and and just wonderful baseball hitters to look at and used to go up to the batting cage and watch batting practice uh, guys that I thought were really great hitters and watch them and, and learn from them but it was for me a real thrill to be in that era of baseball because I think if you look at the hall of fame inductees over the years that era had so many great players and Again, I'm really happy that I got a chance to play with and against them.
4: Getting back to the 1969 season, okay, I think around September 24th, you guys clinched the division. When, in your mind, you say, hey, we're going to win this division?
2: Well, it was pretty close to that. The Cubs were still, you know, you know still a tough team. Um, we were nine games behind them in the middle of August and then finished up nine or ten games ahead of them. So we were just, we, you know, we were such a, a tough team back then because we had – You know, on the pitching staff, we had Seaver and Kuzman and Gentry, and then Ryan with spot start, and Tug McGraw and and Jim McAndrew, and we had a terrific pitching staff. But a thing people really tend to forget is that we had a great defensive ball club. Jerry Grody behind the plate was the best catcher I played with and against, and Bud Harrelson at short, Boswell Weiss at second, and Tommy Agee in center field. So we we knew that we were going to be in close games all the time, as i mentioned before it was really a matter of finding ways to win those close games that we had normally had found ways to lose and and i uh, i guess to to answer your question once about the third of or- Towards the end of August, I knew that we were a team to rec- be reckoned with. We were still behind the Cubs. We still had to make up ground, but once we got into September, I don't think there was a better team in baseball. I mean, I, I, I really believe that, and, and, and of course, Baltimore won 109 games that year in the American League, but but um, we lost the first game in the World Series, and, and I don't think anybody felt like we were going to get uh, beat in four games in a row. I mean, we had Kuzman pitching the next day, and he pitched a great game, so we were we were as competitive as anybody in baseball, but I know that was a long-winded answer for your question, but I think for me it was basically towards the end of August when I saw that we were winning almost every game we were playing. And I knew then we had a team to be reckoned with. And still, you don't believe you're going to win a division. We had never won anything as the Mets. We had never even been at more than 500 at one point in that season. And so it was all new for all of us. But I think everybody was gaining with confidence, and Gil Hodges was a terrific manager and got everybody involved on the team, and and I think that was his greatest asset because he knew that he needed everybody on that team to to play their best, and he got that that year.
4: World Series. What was it like to be in the World Series? And I know Gil Hodges
2: platooned. Did
4: you agree with him on on, on his platooning?
2: Uh, I didn't like it. Nobody liked it. It wasn't great for your career. It wasn't uh, wasn't, you. I had a great – I'll give you a perfect example. I had a great playoffs against Atlanta – seven hits and 13 at-bats and we sweep Atlanta and I don't start the first game of the World Series which was disappointing but but he did send me up the pinch hit in the uh, in the ninth inning um, of that game but but um, you would talk to anybody on that team in particular myself and Ron Sabota who shared right field and collectively we had a pretty good year lots of home runs and lots of RBIs but but we didn't like it because it really wasn't wasn't something that, that you, you you liked and, and it was good for your, you know, like I said, your career, but but it was working. And so we, we tolerated it. And Gil was a guy that would, would be honest with you and tell you, look you in the eye and say, this is the reason I'm doing it. So we accepted it. And uh, he also platooned at first base and second base and third base and sometimes behind the plate. So you had a lot of guys in the moving parts, but, but I don't think anybody really liked it because you you just couldn't get into a groove and you just couldn't put up the numbers. You know, those are the things that they, we weren't allowed agents back in those days, and those were the things that they would hold against you. And you'd say, well, I hit so many home runs and this and that. well, remember that game back in September, you didn't start. And that's what they would say to you. And so you, it was was difficult, but again, it was working. And so we accepted it because Gil was such a great manager.
4: All right. Now you have a book out after the miracle. What's it about?
2: It's about uh, the relationships and the camaraderie uh, of the team and how we stuck together over 50 years. And we've lost 10, I think it's 10 members of that team, including coaches and manager and players. And, and the nucleus is still there, but it's really about the relationships that developed from, you know, the, the losing teams at the Mets until we won the World Series. And then 50 years later, how we're still friends and the camaraderie, camaraderie is still there. We made a trip out to California to visit with Tom Seaver, And really, the, the book starts out with this trip, but putting it together and sitting down with him at a time when we all knew that he wasn't 100% and wasn't going to do, be doing much traveling at that point. And we were lucky to get him on a good day. We talked for about eight or nine hours and took out three other uh, teammates of mine, Bud Harrelson, Ron Sabota, and Jerry Kuzman. And we went out and we really had a wonderful time reminiscing and talking about the year and how important it was for all of us who were part of that team. And, and it was just a great day. And, and, and it was just, uh, I think for Buddy Harrelson who had announced that he was, in early stages of Alzheimer's and and Tom who's had Lyme disease for over 20 years, who's had some problems with his health. Those guys were friends and roommates. And, uh, and during the season, it was just, uh, it was just therapeutic, I think, to, for all of us to get together. And that's really what the book is about this camaraderie and, and love for each other and also about aging. You know, aging is a, is a process we're all going through and it talks about um, growing older and and still remaining friends, and I think people who read it will really enjoy it. It's not the it's not the everyday book that uh, has been written about that team. There's been so many books written about the 1969 Mets and the Met organization, and we, uh, Eric Sherman, who co-wrote the book with me, we decided we wanted to just write something that fans can relate to something sentimental, something that that, uh, that they would understand how close we were and that was really the, 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 the whole crux of the book.
4: So you, you're trying to get along, not really, it's not really about the baseball seasons, it's what you guys did after your careers and how you, you kept in touch. Well,
2: yeah, it's probably about what happened afterwards, but it's, you know there's some game stuff, yeah, everybody wants to know about the Black Cat incident that yeah. year and, and the shoe polish incident in the World Series and and, uh, you know, the no-hitter pitch against us and Tom Sievers almost perfect game and the game where we won against the Cardinals where Steve Carlin struck out 19, but we still beat him. I mean, those are all part of the story. You can't get away from it. But there have been so many books have been just talked about everyday games and stuff like that. We wanted to get a little more human interest in this and talk about the, the relationships we had as players that have remained strong over the years and as we get into this 50th anniversary they still remain strong and even though we we've lost a number of players on that team and coaches and manager it's still a team that 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 spends time together and 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 it's it's one of the most iconic teams i believe in the history of baseball i i know that's hard for many people to believe because they look at it and say hey you guys weren't the greatest team ever to win a world series And, and i agree with them but in the history of baseball, I'll show that that team was one of the most iconic and well-known teams. And what? How many teams 50 years later would they would they celebrate like we're celebrating? I mean, the things that we're doing, uh, all, all the, the, the 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 personal appearances, and and um, all the things that are going to happen this year, and, and you just can't do that with every every team that wins a World Series. So. I think that team is very, very special. It is. And and you guys,
4: you know, the end of August, September, October, you might have been the greatest baseball team of all time for those couple of months. Your pitchings didn't give up home runs.
2: (laughs) Well, I I do believe there was a stat that that I think it was 15 or 16 games um, uh, in that period of time towards the end of the season where uh, Seaver and Kuzman only lost one game. In 15 or 16 starts somewhere like, uh, around that so that's a pretty good indication of our 1-2 uh, pitching uh, staff and and then you throw in Gentry and Nolan Ryan and McGraw and, and Jim um, McAndrew you would have uh, you would have a, a lot of uh, a lot of people uh, thinking that team was one of the best teams ever and, and even though uh, Baltimore won nine more games during the regular season than we did everybody uh, didn't get nobody gave us a chance in the World Series and and I have the distinction of making the last out of the only game we lost in the World Series. But even after we lost it, nobody thought, we in our team anyway, thought we were going to lose four in a row. We had Kuzman the next day, and, and he pitched a great game. And we come back one and one and then we win the next three. So the rest
4: is history. Art Shamsky, thank you for the memories. The book, After the Miracle. Thank you again for your memories.
2: Of, uh, uh, you know, us old Mets fans will never forget you guys. Uh, Thank you so much. It's great to, to be remembered in that way. It was a great team, great guys. And uh, – and uh, I think the 60 ms will live on for another 50 years. Right. Buy the book
4: After the Miracle by R. Champsky. How
3: can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to
5: go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa?
1: These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718 238 6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will. Will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected.
4: I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now.
5: I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers.
1: Connors & Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718 238 6500
8: or connersandsullivan.com. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death, and it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So, we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. When
3: they got a little older, they played a little bolder. Then Hodges took the reins in 68. Welcome to the America Connors Corner segment of
4: Ask the Lawyer. September twenty fourth, nineteen sixty nine. I was at Chase Stadium. Joe Torre hit into a double play, and the fans in the stadium went wild. And the winning pitcher in that game was Gary Gentry, and he's our guest right now. Welcome to Connors Corner, Gary. Thank you, Mike. Okay, so what happened that night, September twenty fourth, nineteen
9: sixty nine? Well, I, it was just a pleasure to be uh, scheduled that night, and we were all, or at least I was hoping during the day, that the Cubs would win so we wouldn't just go out there and be playing already having won the division. So it was kind of exciting, and uh, I can't tell you, I mean, there's a lot of things I would have done different probably if I'd have been older and wiser, but. Uh one of them was i, I probably would have stayed out in the field and celebrated with the fans a little bit, but it it was kind of scary then, so everybody was just running for cover,
4: yeah, because that was kind of unusual then, but it, it was just the moment you know <laughs> it's what happened the me- was. Well,
9: we- it, it wouldn't happen today. I don't think anybody's allowed to go on the field anymore or anything like that, but it, it was that part of the excitement to have the fans enjoying it with us. Now, for you, this, this was your rookie season. That's correct.
4: Now, you had a great college career. You want to tell the audience a little bit about that?
9: Uh, well, I can. I think I kind of brought the uh, World Series with me because uh, in junior college, we won the national championship. At ASU, we won the World, College World Series, and then I think uh i played like two months in williamsport not that i brought that with me but i think we won the eastern division and i went to jacksonville the next year and we won the international league so i thought it was just kind of fitting that if i went to new york we should win that so you're the reason behind the miracle i think pretty much so
4: (laughs) (laughs) okay now you're a rookie did you think you were going to make the team in in spring training
9: i did actually uh I, i did all the things that that you're supposed to do. I stayed the whole year in Jacksonville rather than getting called up or sitting back down, that kind of stuff. I went to Winter Ball and, uh, you know, we won for the first time there, too. And so, yeah, I, I had a good, a strong feeling that given the chance, I could make a team in 69.
4: When the season started, and, of course, we're talking about history here, and some people obviously were not alive in 1969. Oh, when... uh, really? Yes. Now, when did you guys start feeling, hey, we're going to win this division?
9: Well, I, I really don't know when that exactly happened. I know that we were doing really well, and we went through a pitching uh, little big thing there where there was like six, five or six shutouts in a row or something. I don't know. It was just, I probably was in late August or early September that, that we started. We were on a roll, and we uh it felt like we could win every time we went out. And it's, it's not like the Cubs did anything bad. I think they played pretty good ball. It's just we played better.
4: Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people at the time said that the, the – the, the, the cubs blew it but in fact you guys were racing by them. they didn't play that poorly you guys just won 100 games
9: no they, they you know i think that they were cruising along pretty well they had i don't know what they call 13 game lead sometime in august or something and they played at least 500 balls not better and that should have been good enough but uh, i think we just played so well and every night we went out it was like we are going to win <laughs> We found a way to do it sometimes. So, yeah, I don't know. It just kind of fell into place. Okay, now you guys get
4: to the World Series, the third game of the World Series. You're starting, a rookie starting in the World Series. That's somewhat unusual.
9: Well, I don't know if it's unusual. I guess maybe it could be. But, I mean, I I own the spot, I think. I was the legitimate third starter that year. And, uh It was just my turn to pitch, and I was just really happy to do that, and blessed it was the first game ever in Shea Stadium, and and it was just a wonderful day, and I think they probably underestimated me a little bit, so that helped.
4: (laughs) For the audience, you didn't give up a run that day.
9: Nope. (laughs) Now, you
4: had Tommy Agee. Was that the day he made a couple of good catches?
9: Well, yeah. That's exactly what happened, but you know, I feel like it's my job to keep the ball in the ballpark, and it's their job to catch it, so... I think we we both did our job.
4: You got a hit that day too, if I remember correctly.
9: I did first time up. I you know I fact, I was pretty much leading the team in RBI for a while. I think.
4: <laughs> <laughs> All right, so sixty nine ends. You you win everything. You you won a World Series game. You had a good rookie season. What happens after that?
9: Well, I didn't really find that out until I got traded in seventy three, uh, and I really I don't. <clears throat> I don't know how much in depth I can go into this, but it turns out that I had a bone chip in my arm starting in 1970 that was never detected until I went, in 73, they actually took me to Dr. Curling in Los Angeles, and uh, this is a, that's kind of an ugly story, I don't know if I should tell the whole story, but anyway, there was something that happened that shouldn't have happened in it cut my career short, as well as well as my performance. I, I fully expected to grow, not both physically and mentally in the game, and didn't expect it to end quite so soon.
4: What year did your career end?
9: 1975, formally.
4: Okay, and I know you made a comeback in the Mets. You, you pitched a couple of minor league games for the Mets that year.
9: <laughs> well, that's another part of the long story, but yes, I uh, I didn't expect to. Be- come back that summer and and I didn't do anything when I was off until August I got a call from Rube office saying if they could have one more starting pitcher that my team had did Atlanta had just come in and they all told Rube I was throwing well and they didn't know what happened. And uh, he called me and said if you'd come down here and just pitch a game for us, show sure, us you're healthy, we'll you'll be back up to New York. And I went down there, and my I just blew my arm out completely. So it was just kind of a shot in the dark, I guess. But a lot of this was my naivete and my fault. I just didn't pay attention.
4: It's too bad. Do you think things would have been better if you were playing today?
9: <laughs> I don't know. I, I I don't really appreciate the game today as much. Uh, it just seemed more like a business and and lastly, I don't know. I went to I think when they opened. What do you call that? City Park or something like that? Where it Mets play now?
4: City Field, yeah. Uh,
9: yeah, I I think I was there relatively one time. Like I don't remember the year. We came back and they had us on the field. And I mean, I felt like I was in a theater. It just there was big screens everywhere, and the fans were so far off the field. It just didn't really feel like baseball. I mean.
4: All right. But in any event, nobody can take away 1969. You won the, the division-clinching series. You won a World Series game. Very few people can say that in the long run. So
9: thank well, I, you. I, I do feel blessed for that and, and lucky for being the right place at the right time, I guess.
4: All right. Well, us Met fans remember, at least those Met fans that are old enough to remember.
9: You're <laughs> all young enough. Well,
4: even the young ones see you on TV every once in a while when they replay the series. Gary
9: Gentry,
4: Gentry, thank you for your memories.
9: Thank you, Mike. Thank you very much. Say hi to everybody in New
4: York. We'll do that. You'll be doing it now. You know, I I remember being in the stands that night where Gary Gentry clinched the division. Joe Torrey hit into a double play to end the game. And I, much more about the game, I really can't tell you. But I, re, I remember, you know, the crowd just going wild after Torrey hit into that double play to, to end the game. Gary Gentry was a uh, underrated player on that team. You know, he was the third starter. The thing is, I think he's forgotten because, as he mentioned, he had bone chips in his elbow and it wasn't properly diagnosed, which back then maybe they didn't have the... All the equipment or whatever to do that, and so his career was shortened. So he didn't have as long as a career as some other guys. And of course, Art Shamsky had back problems, and his career wasn't as long as some of the guys back then. So 50 years later now, they're getting their moment of fame. Now, we've done a, a number of baseball interviews in the past. And Chris, where, where does somebody get a hold of some of our old baseball interviews?
0: You can hear them both on your website, AskMikeTheLawyer.com. That's AskMikeTheLawyer.com. We have a podcast page for the last five years, you can hear all the programs, including our baseball interviews. But if you want to cut to the chase, we have a YouTube channel. Ask the Lawyer, Connors Corner Conversations. You can hear your conversations with Ron Hunt. There's a couple of those up there. Roger Craig. Orlando Cepeda Yvonne Rodriguez you have an all-star team pretty much put together there
4: you know we're a little thin in the outfield but we do have Felipe Alou you did work
0: on it you did get uh, <laughs> uh, Ron Swoboda too
4: well you got Ron Swoboda and Art Shamsky and Felipe Alou I guess we got an outfield <laughs> but you know Felipe Alou was an all-star Yvonne Rodriguez was obviously Hall of Famer Orlando Cepeda Hall of Famer Randy Jackson had some pretty good years and was a uh, all-star third baseman he was handsome handsome ransom yeah and he's still you know i've got to check on this is he still alive he's got to be well in his 90s now yeah he's still he's still around okay very good you know good heavy bill james
5: like this team
4: no not especially oh (laughs) no because you know there's not not enough on-base percentage here bobby brown had a good on-base percentage and Ron Hunt had a good on-base percentage. You know, that that's the thing right now. Today, Ron Hunt would be making, you know, $20 million a year because he had a very high on-base percentage. Back then, he was just a 270 hitter, so nobody paid any attention to him.
5: His wife his wife got him on. Right. Just get to base.
4: Get to first base, make a left turn, you stay in the major leagues. Make a right turn, you're out of the major leagues. Well, thank you for listening to Ask All the will be on next week at the same time.
3: Slowly. We are gathered here on Hallow
1: For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors and Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills and estate planning and more.
5: Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors and Sullivan's free seminars.
1: On Tuesday, April 9th at the Greenhouse Cafe, 7717 3rd Avenue in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. At Buckley's, 2926 Avenue S in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn on Wednesday, April 10th at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. And at the Montauk Club, twenty. 8th Avenue in Park Slope, Brooklyn on Thursday, April 11th at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m.
5: Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment.
1: Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC